Investment Management Operations is brought to you by Intelligo. Intelligo is the premier due diligence platform delivering innovative pre-investment background checks and continuous subject monitoring for some of the most sophisticated asset allocators. Their individual and company background check reports blend the critical discernment of human experts with cutting-edge AI, ensuring you receive the most thorough and rapid insights. Groups like Common Fund, Adam Street Partners, Felicitas Global Partners, and past Capital Allocators guests Hamilton Lane, AIM13, and NEPC leverage Intelligo to mitigate risk and enhance their operational due diligence process. Visit Intelligo.ai to learn more. Hello. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Investment Management Operations. This show explores the inner workings of the most sophisticated institutions in the industry. Through conversations with executives across operations, compliance, legal, and finance, you'll hear how key operating partners run their businesses in an ever-changing and complex investment landscape. You can join our mailing list and access Capital Allocators content at CapitalAllocators.com. I'm Scott McDonald, and I'm your host. My guest on today's show is Marika Paul. Marika is the Chief Financial and Operations Officer at CDPQ, a global investment firm that manages Quebec's pension and insurance assets, overseeing $424 billion Canadian in assets under management. Prior to joining CDPQ in 2011, Marika worked for Bell Canada Enterprises for almost two decades overseeing various functions across investor relations, M&A, and corporate development. Marika and I discuss her career leading up to CDPQ, her current responsibilities, and what makes CDPQ unique. I really enjoyed learning about how their approach to fair taxation meets up with ESG, and how assessing the total cost of an investment drives the decision of building private equity in-house or farming it out. We also touch on team structure, technology, and advice for operational professionals. Please enjoy my conversation with Marika Paul. Marika, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Glad to be here with you. So I'd love to hear about your background and history of how you got into the role at CDBQ. Professionally speaking, I'm both a CPA and a chartered business evaluator. And first part of my career, I spent about 10 years at KPMG in audit for two years and then in business valuations and M&A. And that really gave me the capacity and the ability to juggle many files. That's what you do at a consulting firm. I then moved on and spent about 16 years at Bell Canada Enterprises in a variety of finance roles as head of investor relations at one point, dealing with the markets and all of our investors at the time. I then went on to manage financial communications, where I learned the importance of being able to simplify messages. I then was asked to become the chief of staff to our CEO. And that was really learning how to manage various constituencies across the board, other executives, and so on. So that was a very eye-opening strategic move because you're involved in everything that the CEO was involved in. So a great learning opportunity. And you can only do that for a couple of years because you can't always be associated with that role. 
following that, I went on to manage operations in areas where I wasn't the expert. Really, all of fleet operations, Bell Canada manages thousands and thousands of vehicles. So it was managing that as well as all of the real estate operations. Coming from an audit background and you're looking at books and records to physical assets, how'd you get your arms around something that was totally new? As you move up in corporate life, it's all around managing operations in areas where you're not the expert. And that's true in a lot of functions that I've had. It comes down to having good judgment, being able to count on the right people, being able to sort out noise from what's really important. I think those are the key elements and keeping everybody headed in the same direction. But there are challenges. And I think one of the things when people build their careers and as they move ahead in life, it's to always stay open to those opportunities. Say yes to things that put you out of your comfort zone. And you'll see that the comfort zone actually increases with time. (laughs) Great. And so where'd you go from there? Well, 12 years ago now, I joined CDPQ, which is the acronym for Caisse de Dépôt et Placement du Québec. It's an organization that was created over 50 years ago to manage the Quebec pension and insurance assets. So we have about 48 different depositors who deposit their funds with us with various risk levels. We manage those assets for them. So our eight largest depositors account for about 96% of our assets and manage about $425 billion Canadian in assets in a variety of asset categories from fixed income to capital markets, real estate, infrastructure, and private equity. So the whole gamut of investments. We've got about 1,500 employees in 10 offices globally. And what's unique about CDPQ is the dual mandate that we have, which is to optimize returns for our depositors, but also to promote the economic development for the province of Quebec. And how is your team structured? About half a dozen years ago, we combined both the finance and the operations teams to provide a more fluid end-to-end process. And I would say that that has been beneficial in making us more seamless and efficient. It wasn't always that way. And when I got here, it was 2011. That was a few years after the 2008-9 financial crisis. And so we spent a lot of time rebuilding the finance function. So the way it is right now, it includes about 250 people in a variety of different areas from corporate reporting teams. We produce financial statements and information for about 200 different entities. Valuation teams, because that's the bread and butter of what we do. We have to value our assets. We do that twice a year, semi-annually for our less liquid assets and daily for our liquid assets. So we have a valuation team. We've got a performance analysis team, operations and cash management, uh, facilities management and purchasing. We've also created a tax team tax budgets and all of our administrative activities. We have a treasury team and internal audit. So it's a variety of things. And as I said before, you can't be an expert in all those areas, but you have to be able to oversee all of those and make sure that they're all well integrated. How has the integration of those teams evolved over time? That's interesting because that's changed a bit. When I first got here, we were largely ignored. But people have come to recognize we've built up 
expertise. And so we first get involved. We identified a point person for all transactions. And there are investment committees in the organization. So we said, okay, we're going to appoint someone from our tax department to sit in on those investment committee meetings. So as soon as a deal starts getting looked at, our tax team gets involved, pre-invest obviously, and shares that information with the rest of our finance organizations so that they can prepare. And we've seen a difference in how investment teams deal with this as well, because we now get called in early on because it may impact how a deal is accounted for, what structure needs to be put in place, making sure we have capacity for financing in place for a deal. When I first got here, I remember it was a couple of weeks before Christmas, and all of a sudden, we get this request. We need a couple of billion dollars within two days because we're closing a deal. Well, you know what? We don't keep a couple of billion dollars in a spare drawer or under a mattress somewhere. So we got the deal done, but people now plan in advance and tell us, okay, this is coming up. So we're better at managing that. And we've just made all of our colleagues in the asset classes conscious of what we need to make things happen. And I'm curious why tax actually is the person to sit in the IC. Tax sits in finance. The legal people are involved as well early on in the process, so they'll be involved directly. But for finance, we said the best person to actually get involved was tax because that's when the structures are looked at. They're the ones that naturally people went towards because as investment teams are looking at a transaction, they'll involve the tax team. And another funny story, when I first got here, there was no tax team. The view was, well, we don't need a tax team because as an entity, a pension asset manager in Canada, we're not actually taxable per se, but we do actually pay significant tax on our assets and earnings in other countries. And so that's a team that we've built up and they've gained credibility and they're always in high demand. And we've done a lot of work in tax over the last couple of years. We're one of the few pension funds or asset managers that have made tax one of the criteria or areas of focus for all of our ESG work. We look at governance and fair taxation. So we've put in place over the last couple of years a tax policy that requires our tax team to sign off on whether an investee company pays their fair share of tax. And so what we look at is whether based on the OCDE requirements that have been put in place where companies need to pay at least a 15% tax rate, we analyze that and make sure that the structures in place will require that to happen. So if our tax team will look at those structures and they'll provide an opinion or an assessment on that, and they can actually refuse a transaction if that's the case. So we last year, We looked at probably about 136 different transactions, and there were about seven or so where we actually refused the transaction, and it didn't go ahead because we felt that the companies that we were investing in, either because of their activities or the structure, were not going to be paying a fair share of tax. That's interesting because it's somewhat divergent from maybe if I'm a private equity manager, I'm actually looking to generate the highest return after taxes, so you might actually shop 
where you might create a domicile. So if you places like Luxembourg and drug royalties, which actually you have some benefit there. So that is actually a little bit different than how other people might address it. Very much so. So we're probably one of the leaders, perhaps with a few European funds who do look at that. And so we will work as well to influence our partners in cases. And so I said we refused seven transactions where in another five, we actually caused a change in the structure, either in where the location was going to be for the transaction or how it was set up. And we do, when we have significant influence, actually cause our partners to change as well. So this is one of the areas we identified in, in governance for that fair taxation is important. And we also analyzed all of our actively managed investments. So in 2021, we looked at about 1,800 of our investments, and we do this annually. And we look to see whether they actually meet that 15% taxation criteria. And if they don't, then we will sit down with management of those companies, we'll have discussions, we'll confirm whether there are reasons in a year that a company hasn't paid tax. Maybe they had significant capital losses or things like that that bring their tax rates down. So we analyze that. And in certain cases, after numerous discussions, the view is, well, we don't want to move or change what we're doing. We have, in certain cases, divested of those companies. So we think that others will follow us eventually down that path. And what about from a legal perspective? Where does legal come in? So they will be there from the start as well, because they will be involved at the very beginning. Both legal and tax are very close. I just talked about tax because that falls in finance and legal doesn't. But yeah, no, they're very much involved from day one on all of the clauses and things that need to be put in the contract. I'd love to talk about the growth of the organization. Headquarters is in Montreal, but you have all these different offices. How did that come to be? We actually have 10 offices. So we're in places like Paris, London, New York, Delhi, Singapore, Sydney, Mexico, and Sao Paulo, besides Montreal and Quebec City. And Our offices reflect where we tend to have the largest concentration of assets. We've got three regional hubs in New York, London, and Singapore, and they have spokes in each region. And the offices are primarily staffed by investment professionals because most of our operations and decision-making are actually centralized in Montreal, both for governance and tax reasons. The first offices were really in New York and in Paris. But the reason we opened the other offices was also aligned with our strategy to become more global in our operations. And we felt that to do that, we needed feet on the street in markets where we were looking to expand. And this evolves over time. But a few years back, we wanted to be more present in Central and South America. So that's why we opened offices in Mexico and Brazil. We also saw big opportunities in India and in Singapore just for all of the Asian operations. So that's how those offices started getting open, probably in the area of about 2014, 15, 16, as we increased our presence. And you can see it. We had about 50% of our assets outside of Canada in 2014. Ten years later, we're about 75% of our assets are outside of Canada. So there's a direct link to that. 
The challenge, though, is the fact that many of those offices are not very big offices, and some of them are more asset class based. So for in Brazil, it's primarily because we have infrastructure assets in those countries. So most of the team is really infrastructure focused. Same is true of Paris. That team is primarily infrastructure. Whereas other offices like London will be more private equity and credit. So they're niche specific. What we've been doing as well over the last little while have been adding more corporate services staff, primarily lawyers, tax experts. And then we also added HR and IT professionals. And now we're in the process of looking at whether we need to perhaps expand and add some risk people to those functions. Less of our operations and finance people other than tax are there just because most of our operations are run centrally in Montreal. And it would make sense to actually just be aware because different countries will have different standards requirements that may be contrary to maybe Quebec. Absolutely. Regulatory rules are very different in each country, in each region. So just having people on the ground makes a difference there. And they were really to push our asset classes at the beginning to move into those new areas. And are those individuals, they tend to be local nationals from that particular country? It's a mixture of both. But yes, obviously, as you're trying to invest, you do want local people who have the connections and the networks in those areas. And you do want culture carriers. So people who can connect back to Montreal. And that's one of the challenges in any global organization. How do you make sure those offices aren't on their own floating in nowhere? How do you tie them back, make sure they understand the objectives, the priorities, the culture of the organization? So we try and have both. And how do you do that? Well, we recruit obviously locally in those countries. And then we try and send people from here. For example, our HR professionals, we've had people go for two, three year stints. We have office managers that we've sent. And we're actually exploring an opportunity right now to create shorter transfer periods so that people could go for three to six month periods to better understand the realities of working in a certain country and then come back. It's simpler than uprooting all of your life for a couple of years, but six month stint can be beneficial as a learning opportunity and a transfer of knowledge and skills. Yeah, you would think that the synergies between the operating team, legal team, and the on-the-ground deal team having a little face time would go a long way. That's one of the things that has always been a challenge in offices like that is how do you make people feel like they're on an equal footing? And it's funny, but the pandemic and the fact that everybody's working on Teams or Zoom actually created that equality because everybody in a meeting now during the pandemic was in teams, whereas often you'd have people in Montreal all in a room and then you'd have one or two people from somewhere else on a screen and it's not the same feeling. So it's interesting where the feedback from the teams was, wow, that created more equality for everybody. Given that footprint, when you think about your deal process or an investment process, is it all the same? I would guess you have some divergence by country and maybe by asset class. I'd love to hear more about how the process might be different by country or asset class, if it's helpful to highlight those issues. 
Well, we actually do want things to be standardized and all of the deals have to be approved in Montreal at the investment committee. And that is for tax reasons, once again, because of our status and the fact that we are not taxable in Canada as a pension asset manager. The decision making has to be here. So the process is pretty standard across asset classes. There are investment committees, there's an investment risk committee that then overall will go yes or no on a transaction. The due diligence processes, there's pretty much the same. There may be certain differences or certain things that we have to look at in certain countries that may vary a little bit, but it would be built into the standard process that we look at. I'd love to talk about the ESG piece. What does that mean for CDPQ? We started very early on. We started with climate. In 2017, we set targets. We wanted to increase our exposure to green assets, low-carbon assets, and we wanted to reduce our carbon intensity. And so we set numerical targets to that, and we created, if you will, carbon intensity budgets for all of our investment teams and actually all of our staff. And we tied their compensation to it. So if you didn't meet your climate targets, then your compensation was reduced accordingly. And we weren't going to say you could only invest in green stuff, but if in an asset class, you actually wanted to invest in something that was more carbon intense, well, you had to be able to offset it with something that was more carbon neutral. And so just like we provide our teams, investment teams with risk budgets, we presented them with carbon intensity budgets. So you had to make trade-offs. And at the very beginning, everybody was very concerned and how are we going to do this? But we were also surprised to see how, especially our younger professionals, were very much on the page. Well, yeah, we have to do something about this. And we as investors, we have to recognize that as well. And we started the whole process, not only because climate was important because of everything we've been seeing even in the past year in terms of the impacts of climate, but because we also felt there were opportunities in a lot of businesses that were introducing new assets or new technologies that were improving the impact on climate. So yes, it was to reduce our risk to certain degrees, but also to take advantage of businesses that were investing in, in new opportunities. We were at the forefront of that, and we try to keep at the forefront of that. And then we've added other things for us in terms of governance. As I mentioned, fair taxation is really important to us. That's been a battle horse for us. Diversity, we continue to push in our investee companies, in our own operations. We've set targets for diversity and not just gender diversity, but a variety of areas. And are you doing questionnaires out to your partner managers on that piece to track where they are and benchmark them and going forward or something else? Yes, we do. For example, every investment that we review has a tax review. Well, we've also got a climate review, an environmental impact review, and we've got a technology risk review as well. So before we invest in something, yes, we'll look at those impacts. And on the climate piece, ESG is a very broad term that everybody uses, but how do you come up with the metrics around that? 
we issue a responsible investing report. And we've, for since about 2017-18, we've issued a report annually on our carbon intensity and how we calculate it and so on. And I think one of the key messages here is you can't expect to be perfect in this stuff. It's better to go with something. When we set the original targets, we didn't know, were they too aggressive? Were they not aggressive enough? And we've been able to see that we've been able to beat those targets. So every year we've been increasing those targets, in fact. And it's better to start somewhere. And you'll hear this from our responsible investing team. And I would say the same thing with the disclosure that we're going to see under the new ISSB regulations. Better off to start somewhere and build up and improve than to aim for perfection and never get the thing off the ground. So I think that's a key element for any entity that's putting that in place. And where does technology fit into this equation for CDBQ? Well, technology is a huge part of everything that we do, obviously, because we've got two assets, our people, number one, and our systems and our technology. And we spend a lot of time with our technology people looking at how we are able to optimize, automate. We started on a journey 10 years ago. We've got investment books of record. For example, for our liquid assets, we use Murex. For our illiquid assets, we use Front Invest and eFront. So those are our investment books of record. And we've then, over the last couple of years, with our technology teams, we spent about four or five years changing all of our disclosure and our GL, where our investment books of record contain all the detail, and then we flow that up into our GL. Prior to this change, every single transaction flowed into our GL. Our overnight processing of transactions was very long because we were updating everything all the time. Now we don't have that. We've simplified a lot of that. We've taken out about 50 or 60 different add-ons to all of our financial disclosure process in this new project. So that was something that we did in the finance organization over the past few years. Now we're turning our focus towards digitizing our investment processes. And we're using APN to actually help us do that. What it does, it will create workflows from the inception of a transaction right until the recording in our books. And that will eliminate a lot of re-entry of information. It'll also permit everybody to know when they're supposed to be involved in a transaction and contribute to that. And all of those controls, approvals, documentation, et cetera, will be stored in one place. So if I then want to go and find it after, I don't have to sort through 56 doors of people that used to work here to try and find the documentation for a transaction. I'm not actually kidding. That has happened. (laughs) (laughs) And so that should help us save time and precious time for investment professionals who are Otherwise, rekeying things in or people are asking information on different areas. One of our governance processes will look at technology risks and we'll look at environmental risks and all sorts of risks. Well, people often come and ask the same questions. So we're hoping that process will actually save us time and make us more agile and efficient. We're starting with our fixed income group because they have the most transactions, because their time horizons like in credit they turn their portfolio every couple of years, whereas our less liquid assets, we tend to hold for longer. So there's less volume, but in credit, there's a lot of volume. So that's why we're digitizing those processes first. 
So does that mean that you actually have to sit down and document actually what your process is? Document and then at the same time, before you actually automate that, big part is don't just document what you have now, but look at how it should be and challenge. And so we've got people that are actually there and that group sits in finance, continuous improvement and trying to project managers who will go in and contribute and go, okay, well, is that really the way we want to do it? Is that best practice or should we change it before we automate it? Because if you just automate the same stuff you were doing before, you're not optimizing. It's exciting stuff. You guys are part of the Maple 8, and I'd love to hear more about what that peer group is talking about today. All of us have a very particular model in that we invest across all asset classes. We've done a lot of work in less liquid assets. Governance is very important for all of these, so that's one of the highlights. For example, the rating agencies and various other entities that look at our operations identify as the strong governance boards that have expertise in a variety of areas. So it's not just members of a union or depositors who have an interest, but really people with, as you'd see in public company boards, people with expertise in a variety of areas. So I think that is something that distinguishes the Maple 8 from many others, just the professionalization of that. What are we seeing? All of our peers have been focused on increasing their global investments, looking at valuation as a big concern right now as markets have been more difficult. There are less transactions. Marketable securities are easy to value. But how do you value less liquid assets when there are less transactions? Another area that we've been pushing a lot with our peers is everything that has to do with sustainable investment. And the new standards that are coming out from the International Sustainability Standards Board, that's something all of the Maple 8 have contributed to the setting of those standards. And now the standards are coming into effect. So we're talking about and doing gap analyses and so on to see, okay, what reporting are we doing now? What do we need to do? What do we want from our investing companies? So that's another area that we're collaborating on. And I think everyone is focused as well on AI and what do you do with that? And how do you continue to automate and become more agile? And then there are a whole bunch of regulatory topics and issues that you would expect the group to share on and work towards. And I think another area that we follow what everybody discloses, how people operate in certain areas, we've been doing a lot of work recently on a total cost project, but this is another area that we're working with our IT folks on where we're revamping our whole P2P purchase to payment process and in order to provide us with better total cost information. So just not of our operating expenses, but all of our investment costs. About 80% of our activities are managed in-house, but there are some that are managed externally. We use external investment managers. Well, how do we know what the costs are related to that? You talked about LPs and GPs and what kind of costs are they providing? Usually those get netted out with returns. Well, how do we get the detail of those costs, be it for operating charges, performance and management fees, and just transaction costs? So really, two years ago, we started disclosing all of that information. A lot of it is still manual. We want to highly automate getting all of that information, standardizing it. 
And I know that's an area that all of our peers in the Maple Aid are working on as well, because we've actually got groups where we share on what everybody's doing so that we are aligned. And is that a function of resource allocation in-house? What we're working on right now is combining the information on what it actually costs per asset class and the value add that we can create by asset class to determine where we're best to allocate our resources, our capital. So our portfolio construction team is going to use that information. It won't be the only determinant, obviously, because it depends on what we see as future for certain asset classes and the risk levels. But it's certainly something will contribute to our total portfolio construction team's thinking in allocating resources. And in the past, it has influenced some things. When we looked at what it cost us to do private equity externally versus private equity internally, similar to our Canadian peers, we actually saw that it was more cost-effective to create in-house private equity teams as opposed to just farming everything out to external managers. Now, is that still the case? Is there a balance between those two? You need to do both. But it was certainly influential, that rationale, in our creation of private equity teams. And do you see the market heading that way if you're a large plan? I think so. I think all of our peers are going that way. There'll be more and more disclosure on that. For example, even in the US, a lot of asset managers have been pushing ILPA to standardize a lot of those things. Back to your team. When you hire people, I'd love to hear more about what you look for when you're hiring somebody. We've actually done a bunch of work recently on our HR team together, the whole organization undertook a project last year to identify jobs of the future and the skill sets we require in all areas of our business, in our investment teams and our finance organizations. We're really looking for people with, yes, finance backgrounds, but also with tech backgrounds. So people who can program, who can use technology in addition to understanding finance and the business that we're in, because that allows us to automate, to not manually do things and not have to call our IT colleagues every time we have a little thing that we want to change. So that's one part. People with more of a tech and development background, as well the ability to analyze and make connections. So people be well-informed of what's going on, being able to connect the dots around what seems sometimes disparate information, but going, ooh, there could be a connection here. How's that going to impact and so on? And very importantly, be able to storytell, to be able to communicate what we find in our analysis so that we can influence decision-making. And again, anecdotally, when I look back a couple of years ago, what we saw was we did a whole lot of analysis. Our team's super smart people, because when I first joined this place, there must be more PhDs and quants and so on per square foot than every place ever I've been. But we weren't very good at communicating what we found. So we ship off a complicated analysis to people, and then who knows what they did with it. Probably never opened it because it was too complicated to understand. But now, what do we do with that? What decisions should we use that for? And so it's that ability to storytell and cause decisions to change or be confirmed or whatever. And that's really important for the teams as well, because they feel a sense of accomplishment when they go, you know, I analyzed this. 
I connected all the dots and someone actually did something with it. That's the best reward that we can give our teams. When you roll that forward, I think about somebody who's been in the industry for a while. I might benefit from somebody who is coming into the workforce. So you have this mentor-mentee potential arrangement where we can actually learn from each other. Is that something you guys are thinking about as well as you think about the careers of tomorrow? Absolutely. Because what we're seeing with younger people that are coming out of universities is that whole capacity to think differently, use technology better, use data sources. So we're pairing people and getting people who've been around a little bit longer to share their knowledge of the organization, but learn for people who bring some of those new skill sets. We're also encouraging people to actually learn some of those new skill sets, become better at forward-looking analysis, be able to storytell. So we're getting people to take courses, put that into practice, encourage that to happen. And then we're creating with our subsidiaries centers of excellence in certain areas so that we can pool resources together across some of our operating subsidiaries and so on so that we're more efficient. People, if they're one person in governance, well, they get to share with three other people from three other subs and we've got a little small community of practice or whatever and everybody learns from each other in doing that. Given your history, I'd love to get your input on any advice to someone either in the seat similar to yours or someone looking to get into the role. Well, a couple of basic things. Always deliver on what you've undertaken. Under-promise and over-deliver. And learn to simplify processes, activities, communication. Connect the various dots. So important. And learn to deal with ambiguity because that's where the tough decisions are. Stuff that's black or white, no one has trouble making those calls. It's when it's gray that people have a lot of trouble. As I said at the very beginning of our conversation, say yes to opportunities that open up. You may not always be perfectly suited for something, but you can work hard, you can learn things. So yes, consider those opportunities because normally people don't offer you opportunities if they think that you're completely incapable of handling them. Keep that in your mind. And I think women tend to have a little more trouble with that. There's a lot of research and so on that's out there that says, guys, you ask them, do you want to take this on? And they'll go, yes, and it doesn't matter what it is. And women will go, hmm, do I have all the criteria that I need? No one's going to ask you if they don't think you can handle it. And another thing that we forget to do when stuff gets busy, take time to network both within and outside the organization because you never know where you're going to be given an opportunity by someone. The world is pretty small and there's always someone who knows someone that you've spoken to. You can learn a lot from talking to people. And you know, one of the things I do is I actually schedule time for that because you can get engulfed in a lot of things. So I go, okay, so many times a month, I'll go and meet with someone from the outside and I'll force myself to understand what's going on somewhere else. You'll always learn something along the way that's useful for you. Any advice on working with investment people as an operations and finance person? If you can listen to their needs and identify opportunities to help them, they will turn to you time and time again. We've seen it. When I first got here, 
we had no relationship with our investment teams. But now they'll call us up on a regular basis for advice. It started with our tax team, our disclosure team, and our accounting professionals. They'll provide advice. We recently, our private equity team is looking at doing some sales of secondary funds and so on. They turned to us from day one to include us in the discussions, ended up changing the structure of the transaction for different regulatory reasons. Not sure several years ago that would have happened. We would have found out after the fact. But I think it's providing simple advice, provide value add to someone, they'll come and see you again. I'd love to close with two questions we tend to ask people. One is what one piece of, could be book, article, website, anything you recommend for people to read or follow? I read so many different things that I can't really pick one thing. I scan a variety of different sources, be it everything from the Financial Times to know what's going on in the world to -to up-to-date research from large consulting firms. So, you know, I like to keep everything open and everything on a daily basis. So I don't have one, the tidbit of stuff to read. Then the other question I have was, what advice would you give to somebody who's an emerging manager looking to partner with CDPQ? Get to know us, understand what drives us. In terms of some of the particularities, which I identified earlier, we're obviously optimizing returns is important for us. Investing in our local market is important for us, as well as globally, but also everything that turns around responsible investment. It's something that we've been pushing, be it on the environmental side. For us, we were one of the first firms in about 2017 to launch a focus on climate change that continues to be important to us on governance and diversity. We talked about fair taxation. We talked about some of these other things. So knowing the drivers of our investment policies, I think that's key for an emerging manager that wants to do business with us. You have a lot going on. We do. It's exciting. And leading from the front, I love it. Well, Marika, this has been an awesome conversation. Great. Well, thanks for inviting me, and I hope that we'll have the opportunity to continue our discussion in the future as we continue to innovate and move forward on a variety of topics. I can't wait to hear what's next. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com, where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one, and see you next time. Thank you.